25 years ago today, one of the defining records of the 1990s was released. An album that managed to define an era just as much as those who made it, Damon Albarn, Alex James, Graham Coxon and Dave Rowntree have come to represent an essential part of British music history. Commercially popular and universally acclaimed, it had incalculable effects on the music industry in the UK. I clearly recall in the immediate aftermath of the album coming out, it was just everywhere. They absolutely owned it. They were everywhere. People absolutely adored them. What I do remember was getting the 12-inch, putting it on my own stereo and thinking, hmm, this is pretty good. I'll just put that on again. No one could have foretold that that album would then sit in the album chart for over a year. Join me, Josh Riddicombe, for the next hour as we hear from those closest to this iconic record. From producers, to band members, to fans, to celebrate Blur's Park Life. This is Park Life 25. The first I heard of Blur was in 1994 when Park Life came out. I was 11, it was in year seven, the first year at secondary school. I got Park Life for Christmas in 1994 and listened to it exclusively. Blur's Park Life, like loads of people in my generation, turned us on to credible guitar music. And I think a lot of other people had their lives changed like that. This was years after the band had first formed and long after they'd signed with Food Records in 1990. Dave Bell founded Food in 1984 recruiting Andy Ross as the co-partner and A&R man for the label a little later. Here's Andy Ross talking about the first time he came across the group. We found this new group called Seymour, and that came from a cassette. I played it to Balfi. There were four songs on it, one of which became the first single, ultimately, which is She's So High. Food Records founder, David Balf. He would be out and having a dozen or so people that we were interested in, and occasionally when someone did something quite good, bring it to me, and i go... Mm, okay, I'll come to see a gig. And we did that with Blur, and we liked them a lot, and we talked to them, and we got a good relationship. And they were taking on board what we were saying, and it was slowly evolving in a way that we liked, until at a certain point we said, yeah, we'd like to do this, and we, we did a deal. As part of that deal with Food Records, the band had to change their name from Seymour, and from the list of alternatives, they opted for Blur. Mike Smith worked on Blur's publishing for their first album and remained a close personal and industry friend with the group throughout their career. And I just started going to see them repeatedly and every time I went to see them I fell more and more in love. And it was just like at that point every bit of my energy went into trying to sign that band. Guardian journalist John Harris, who wrote for music magazines Melody Maker and Enemy back in the 90s and is also the author of the critically acclaimed Britpop book The Last Party. Here he is talking about his first experiences of Blur. I first became aware of Blur around the time that She's So High came out, the first single. And I liked the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and all of that. And at that point, I associated them with that. Renowned music producer Stephen Street picked up on the band very soon into their career. My first experience of Blur was seeing the video for She's So High. My manager at the time, Gail Colson, she was managing Jesus Jones, who I knew were label mates to Blur. And so I said to Gail, look, if Balf at Food is ever looking for a new producer for the band, let them know that I would be interested. We decided to do a session together to see how it would go. And that session bore the track There's No Other Way, which proved to be a really big single for them. So that was the beginning of my working relationship with them. Street would go on to work on six Blur albums, including Park Life. 
The industry seemed to instantly recognise the promise of the band, and Blur bassist Alex James recalls the immediate connection that the four-piece had that attracted such attention. The crazy thing about Blur is that the very first time we got in a room together, it kind of happened, it just happened straight away. She's So High, which was our first single, we actually wrote at our first rehearsal. It's incredible, really. There was just a real chemistry between us right from the get-go, from the first time we got in a room together. This chemistry and creativity quickly resulted in the formation of the band's debut, Leisure, released in 1991. Leisure, while not too highly regarded in the music press, produced numerous successes in the singles chart. She's So High, There's No Other Way and Bang, all being top 40 hits. However... Blur and British indie rock could not compete with the dominance of America's grunge scene at the time. And now probably the biggest band in the world right now. The pleasure is all yours. Please welcome Nirvana. The release of Nirvana's Nevermind in 1991 marked the pinnacle in American superiority over the British alternatives. The first album, Leisure, went gold, but then it all went a bit pear-shaped because then we had the big surge of grunge and Nirvana happened. You only have so much slot in radio for rock, and suddenly all of that slot was taken up with American rock bands. Suddenly the only music you were starting to hear, it was mainly American music. It was Nirvana, it was Pearl Jam, it was Soundgarden. That was the dominant musical genre at the time. Grunge had arrived. Which is pretty good, but as Morrissey once sang, it said nothing to me about my life, really. I mean, it kind of did, in the sense that it was about being angst-ridden and at odds with the world, but it was from a different musical heritage. I suppose Nirvana, we did sort of hold them as the antithesis. In fact, the record company came down in the middle of a bass take, a song called Star Shaped. I was halfway through doing it. <laughs> and they were like, stop, 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 stop. This is all far too British. British pop, you're mad. This will never work. And they wanted us to go and re-record The Whole of Modern Life is Rubbish with Butch Vig, the guy who did Nevermind for Nirvana. And that's a record I'd like to hear, actually. But good job that didn't happen. After that initial baggy dance Manchester scene died away, there was a bit of a vacuum, really into which the American influence took over for a while. It was very inward-looking. Some of the celebratory thing of music had kind of disappeared slightly. In comparison, the UK music scene seemed less inspiring and less important. The baggy thing, which was really rock bands under the influence of the acid house culture, Stone Roses and Happy Mondays are the two most famous groups, that sort of petered out. In retrospect, I remember distinctly this feeling of going to venues and writing about groups and thinking, well, this is all right. And I can see what they're trying to do, but it's not all that really, is it? I quite liked some of that stuff, but I never really felt it was comparable to this amazing music that I'd picked up on when I was a kid. Former chief rock critic at The Guardian, Caroline Sullivan, covered the British music scene in the 90s. Just before Parklife was released, British rock didn't really have an identity. It was all about disparate things. There was trip-hop, there was white soul pop, there was a tiny British grunge scene, but... Basically, British rock didn't have a particular identity. There's nothing to coalesce around. It was in this vacuum that a host of young and talented British musicians were ready to thrive, filling the void and reclaiming the attention of British audiences. This scene started with some sharp musicians, sharp-looking, sharply opinionated as well, like Suede and Blur and Pulp. It really opened up a scene that took people's imagination, I think. If we were talking about a Britpop timeline, I would say that the first shot over the bows was the Select magazine cover, um, I think it was August 1993, that introduced Suede and the auteurs. It was that celebration of 
a British cultural identity against America that was being celebrated. Press wanted to celebrate something, and they just felt there was something to kind of get their teeth into. So they kind of created this scene, but there was a big market of kids wanting to celebrate something. They were proud to be British and loved British music and wanted to champion British music. We had a double whammy of grunge and there was suede, and suede were the best band in Britain, and Blur weren't. And so to a certain extent, suede had set the bar by becoming the best band in Britain, and Blur had to rise to that. There were sort of two stages to Britpop stirring, right? One is when Suede came around the corner in 92. But Suede were quite a difficult sort of proposition in the sense that it was all sort of nocturnal and lank hair and a bit David Bowie and all that. Whereas the Britpop that followed it was different. It was kind of bright and had a lot more joyfulness and playfulness and all that about it. And that's sort of what Park Life represented. So they're kind of whisperings of a scene, but Park Life actually gave it an identity, something for a scene to actually build up around. Because there always has to be something emblematic when a scene gets off the ground and Park Life was it. And that's the way that the music business works. You know, suddenly you're out of favour, we're all excited about heavy American stuff. Suddenly, oh God, we're all bored with our heavy American stuff. We like this colourful British stuff. He's a 20th century boy. With the early signs of a Britpop scene forming, Blur took the opportunity to join this new wave of British music. And it was within this context in 1993 that Blur released their second album, Modern Life is Rubbish. It was a development musically and stylistically for the band, as John Harris remembers. I started writing for the New Musical Express, the NME, in 92. And the first feature that I remember thinking, this is great, I'm really pleased I'm doing this, was when they gave me the feature to launch in the NME, Modern Life is Rubbish. And they rented us these quite posh-looking vintage cars. And the idea was that with Blur, we would drive these to Clacton on the Essex coast. And I would interview Damon on the way, and he would explain modern life is rubbish, and then we'd sort of have a jolly time in Clacton. On the way, in the back of this vintage car, before it broke down, he was talking about if punk was getting rid of hippies, then I'm getting rid of grunge. And it was obvious that suddenly something had happened. And so that trip to Clacton, it was a bit of an epiphany for me, really. And then they did Modern Life is Rubbish, which was kind of a template almost for park life. The reason it was considered so groundbreaking at the time was that, A, there was nothing else quite like it, and B, it was just so different from leisure. The music was great. I mean, For Tomorrow was such an amazing record. I hadn't heard anybody for ages and ages sing about London that poetically. Because they were a good group in the sort of baggy Stone Roses period, but they didn't have anything to say. Whereas now, suddenly they, oh, right, you have something to tell us, you know, you have a message. And I suddenly felt I was talking to people that I sort of innately understood. I got what they were trying to do. And in the most beautiful way, it reminded me of who I'd been when I was 15, 16. And I was able, I felt confident about writing about that. And that's who, who Blur were. And although Modern Life is Rubbish was not a huge commercial success... It was like a kind of stepping stone. They knew they were going somewhere with it. You know, they knew there was a kind of an undercurrent of change. We had success early on. Our second single was a big radio hit. But then after that, the press really turned on us, actually. So, like, we were kind of destitute. We were, Everybody hated us. We had no money. And we went from someone who had top ten to just about getting in the top 40 with the second album singles, For Tomorrow and Chemical World. Blur were literally a marketing meeting away from being dropped and I think we just had one or two friends within the walls of EMI who if it came to giving us the benefit of the doubt they said well let's give them another go those two tracks absolutely kept them in the game to live to fight another day Modern Life is Rubbish though critically acclaimed 
did not provide the commercial success that the band nor the label had hoped. After their breakout with Leisure, by 1993, Blur had seemingly already reached their commercial peak. They were on the brink with their record label and the media had turned their backs on them. If anything, the band had stalled. In this period of stagnation, the band needed the tide to change in their favour. And that moment would come for Alex James in the summer of 1993, in Sweden of all places. There was one particular night in Sweden. We were doing a festival in Sweden in the middle of summer and we were about to go on and the crowd were like really, really up for it. We said, well, let's start with that new one that we wrote, Girls and Boys, and just see how it goes down because it feels like this could be a good night. It's called Girls and Boys. So Dave just started tapping along the bass drum, you know, the doof, 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 and they all started punching the air in time to the bass drum and then Damon was playing the keyboard, so in with that keyboard riff. They were just going absolutely nuts. And by the time I kicked in with the bass, everybody was on their feet jumping up and down. And I remember as the first chorus kicked in, a bra hit me in the face. <laughs> and it was like, wow, something's changed here. So three and a half minutes after playing that song for the first time, it was clear that nothing would ever be the same again. This gig, shortly before the recording of Parklife, helped to convince the band that their fortunes may be about to shift. They would display this newfound confidence and the promise of their new material to the British public at Reading Festival later that summer. As far as I'm concerned, the absolute turning point for Blur's entire career was Reading Festival of 1993. They played the Reading Festival and that's when, almost like the tide turned, it exploded. And it was magical that night, it was amazing. Because there were 5,000 people who really liked them, you could tell the atmosphere was brilliant and they really delivered, you know. We must have played Girls and Boys in Park Life that night and there was people couldn't get in the tent it was really packed you just got the feeling that actually this is going quite well it was a good night the audience was absolutely going nuts singing all the lyrics from the songs you just felt that something was happening it was the performance that everybody spoke about at reading it wasn't a headline performance on the main stage but they blew the tent out that set all of the music journalists off into a bit of a spin thinking oh my god we really messed up collectively. Melody Maker actually sent a letter of apology, effectively, to the band. And suddenly everybody's saying, hang on, this band Blur that we'd sort of written off a couple of years ago, they're back, and they're really exciting, and they look incredible, and they've got bags of attitude. And you just knew, this isn't going to fade away. This is really going somewhere. This is, you can't stop this. It felt inevitable that something was going to happen. And we took that energy and willpower that we were feeling from the audience and carried that into the sessions. Shortly after concluding their tour for Modern Life is Rubbish and off the back of their momentous 1993 Reading Festival performance, the band took to Maison Rouge Studios in Fulham, armed with a host of new songs, ready to record their third album. And they started writing and recording with Stephen Street quite quickly after that. And because the pressure was off, and they had this great response from Reading. Suddenly they were full of optimism and hope and with the challenge of Suede and Elastica and what have you at the time, they had to rise to that and they came up with some really good tunes. The work and park life started very quickly. I mean, within months, we were back in the studio working on the initial tracks that would go towards park life. By the time we came to write park life, we'd actually been like gigging and playing a lot, like hours every day. We kind of learn our crafts, really, which is something bands don't get time to do anymore. What was amazing is that this incredible period of creativity that had, had led to Modern Life is Rubbish coming out rolled straight into part life. 
And that connection that they had with Stephen Street continued through. They were just in an amazing working relationship there. Let's do the first one one more time, guys. It was clear that Blur were in the middle of a run of unprecedented creativity. At that time particularly, Blur were very prolific. They were always in the studio demoing new songs, and they were either on the road touring or in the studio recording. Damon, as the main creative engine of the band, dug deep and started writing an incredible run of songs. I think it's the only person I've ever seen ever that I worked with that obviously went away and came up with not just a whole different attitude. Damon's someone we've learned. When he needs to write a hit single, he knows how to write a hit single. I mean, we knew we were going into the studio kind of fully loaded. I think girls and boys went in the bag pretty soon and we're like, yeah, this is pretty good. We just seemed to hit a formula that was working really well and we weren't scared to try anything. Whatever the song needed, we went down that route. And that was the thing I really loved about Blur. There's something really compelling about making music with your mates. It became involuntary. By the time of Park Life's completion, Blur had recorded a collection of songs that would change the shape of British popular culture in the 1990s, in what many consider to be their finest moment. That's all to come after the break on Park Life 25. Welcome back to Park Life 25 with me, Josh Widdicombe. Between August 1993 and January 1994, Blur worked tirelessly recording Park Life. This period, arguably their most formidable in the studio, had promised excellence, but did the final product live up to this expectation? Blur bassist Alex James. We went to the mastering, but actually the mastering engineer somehow had managed to put the master mix into mono, so I remember being in the mastering, just thinking, like, mm. <laughs> but then uh, Stephen Street, the producer, worked out what happened. So I've never seen him get cross very often. He's like, come on, we're out of here. So we stomped out of the mastering. Stephen Street, producer of Park Life. I think when you produce an album, it's not actually until you actually get the finished item, as it were, in your hand, and hopefully not had listened to it for a little while as well, that you can actually put it on and appreciate it. And I do remember getting the CD or the album when it first came out and putting it on and really thinking, actually, this, this is a damn good piece of work. Music journalist John Harris. I was sent a cassette with two tracks on it as a sort of taster, one of which was Girls and Boys and the other was End of a Century. And I got sent to go on the road with Paul Weller in Ireland. He said, have you got any music? And I said, yes. And we put on Girls and Boys and you could tell wow, this is going to be good, isn't it, if they maintain this standard? Mike Smith, former A&R at MCA Publishing. By now, you had a band with a peerless collection of songs brought together in part life. You had a band that had been touring pretty solidly for three or four years now. They had a rabid core following, so it didn't take much. All you had to do was throw a bit of petrol on that fire and it was going to go up. In fact, not everyone agreed with this. Around the time that Park Life was released, Food Records founder David Balfe made the tough decision to sell the record label to EMI. Well, it is this point that I made the stupidest decision of my life, very possibly. I was really um, in a bad way, and I decided I was packing it all in because I own this label, and I went to Andy and said I wanted to pack it in, sell a label to EMI, but only on the basis that Andy 
carried on running it. And Andy reluctantly agreed after trying to persuade me not to and kept on telling me, but I think this Blur album's really good, it's really going to do well. And I was sort of so negative at that point, I couldn't see it. It was a very big mistake. So Andy picked up the ball and ran with it incredibly effectively, for which I'm very grateful. In spite of this, in early March, the band released the opening track from the album as the lead single. It's safe to say it was like nothing in the charts at that moment, and certainly like nothing that Blur had done before. It was called Girls and Boys. What I do remember was getting the 12-inch of Girls and Boys, a test pressing, and taking it back to my flat in Covent Garden, putting it on my own stereo and thinking, hmm, this is pretty good, I'll just put that on again, and opening the windows and just blasting out the windows, and like people telling me to turn the noise down, just telling them to shove it. Upbeat and characterful, Girls and Boys opens Parklife with its memorable chorus, catchy bassline, and infectious disco beat. Well, I remember Damon playing me a very basic demo of it, and it was literally like a little kind of drum machine. And I remember saying to him, look, let's go for this uh, 120 BPM disco beat. Instead of the band playing it live, we actually did program it, so it was programmed as if we were making a disco record. And then we got Dave in on top to do some fills and cymbals. And then obviously once Graham and Alex started playing on top of it, it really did start sounding like Blur. And that song came together pretty much in the space of an afternoon. How can you not like Girls and Boys? I mean, A, it's got this earworm, the chorus, right? And then secondly, it's funny. It's really funny. Thirdly, it actually has really great lyrics. It's not just a silly pop song. Avoiding all work, because there's none available. Like battery thinkers count your thoughts on one, two, three, four, five fingers. I mean, that's amazing stuff. You don't get many top five records that are that articulate. It sounded like nothing anyone had heard for years, like from a cool band. But it was just a pop tune. And Girls and Boys was, again, a really original piece of music. And it was Blurred making their interpretation of what a dance record was. A very beat-driven song. And it was a song about kids going up on holidays to Europe and getting into all kinds of trouble. Caroline Sullivan, former chief rock critic at The Guardian. Before it came out, all I'd heard was Girls and Boys, which I absolutely loved because it was the first first really catchy song I'd heard in a long time. So when I heard Girls and Boys and it was all about this sardonic thing about uh, following the herd down to Greece, it was a social commentary cloaked in a sing-along and I thought it was fantastic. I'd heard the demo and I said to Damon, I want to record that. So we recorded it that afternoon. I always remember the next day, Andy Ross phoned from Food and he asked me how the session was going. And I said, oh, it's going great. Oh, you've got to hear this song we recorded. It's called Girls and Boys. It's going to be a smash. And he said to me, um, Stephen, you've not been asked to produce that one. And I said, well, <laughs> I've done it and I'm sure you're going to love it when you hear it because I think it's going to be great. When he did finally come into the studio and listen to it, he agreed, obviously, as well. And it proved to be a big hit. I keep thinking what would have happened if I hadn't actually done that track that day. Perhaps it could have turned out completely different. You know, it was one of those little kind of magic moments, really. Girls and Boys became Blur's highest charting single to date, reaching the top five in the UK charts. It saw the band make a link between rock and pop and was indicative of the successes that were about to follow. When we put out Girls and Boys, the single, we had no hopes or intentions of aspiring to have a number one single or anything remotely like that and it was a major achievement I think to get it as high as it did. And sure enough it gotten back into the top ten. So it was a real big thing to cross over and quite an achievement. The second track to be released could not have been more different from the opening single 
A meandering love song to the end features orchestral strings with Stereolab's Letitia Sadia providing ethereal French backing vocals. In terms of songs, actually, to the end was quite an early one. That was written and quite finished really early on, and we actually ended up just using the demo backing track of that on the album. Even getting Letitia from Stereolab to do the uh, jusqu'à la fin bits onto the end was a big deal because they were a much cooler band than us. Although not actively involved in the track's production, Stephen Street appreciated what the song brought to Park Life. To the end, actually, that is the one song on the album I didn't produce. What had happened was they'd done a demo of that with John Smith, the engineer, and it was really, really very, very good. It was very close to the finished thing. They knew they wanted to put strings and things on it, and at that time, one of the key producers around was a guy called Stephen Haig, and he was well-known for orchestrated productions. The label just sought to make sure it's a hit, let's get Stephen Haig involved. And uh, so that was the one song that I didn't produce on the record. Well, you and I collapsed and I... To the end demonstrated a musical maturity, as well as Blur's dexterity and the variation that the album promised. The song often most associated with Parklife is the album's superb title track. But its creation was not as straightforward as the rest of the album. And by the time we'd got about two-thirds of the way through the album, myself, but I think the band also, were a bit sick of the song, to be honest with you. Although Park Life was the title of the album, the song itself was kind of not quite working for us. And this was when Damon was doing the narration. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as... And I don't think anybody quite knew what to do with it. And it, it didn't quite work with Damon delivering the verse as a rap. We pushed it to one side. And there's a song on the album called The Deck Collector, which ended up being this instrumental piece. But at the time, Damon was proposing to write a poem about a nasty character, The Deck Collector. They had decided they were all going to approach Phil Daniels to do that voice. So we kind of, between us, we're discussing things and this idea came up, well, listen, if Phil can't do the deck collector, why don't we let him have a go at doing the narration on Park Life itself? We reached out to Phil Daniels to see if he'd do it and it was a big deal. Quadrophenia was right up there as one of our group favourite films. Brilliant actor. So, you know, actually, you've got to remember that we were bright-eyed indie hopefuls then, really, and, you know, Phil was box office. So, like, that was a big deal, getting him on board. So we sent him the demo And Phil came in and he had about four or five takes of it and I put together the best parts of it. And he delivered the words brilliantly. It felt more like a piece of musical theatre than it did a modern contemporary piece of music. I get up when I lost, except on Wednesdays when I get rudely awakened by the dustman. It put some life back into the song again. It gave it a character that it really needed. And it was saved and put on the album. Whereas at one point, you know, it was touch and go. The genius throat with getting Phil Daniels in and what he was doing turned into another kind of magic when Phil Daniels did it. And the chorus is, of course, one of the great British pop choruses of all time. It felt for a bit like it was the national anthem. Because, I mean, it has got a national anthem type chorus, all the people, so many people. So he's sort of singing about England or Britain in this very celebratory way. It was just absolutely everywhere. It was sort of inescapable, really. 
It was totally original. I struggled to compare Park Life to any other music that had been going on in the 90s up to that point. Park Life with Phil Daniels' distinctive spoken word narration on everyday normality and its anthemic chorus is an unapologetically iconic British song, in a good way. And this Britishness is a clear theme that runs throughout the album. In the early 90s, England was being considered a bit second-rate musically, that nothing really mattered, we weren't doing anything right. And so Damon decided that the fight back was going to start right there with Parklife. So he made an album about Englishness in all its ups and downs. It all felt like a really pivotal moment for British youth culture. It just summed up the vibe in the country at the time. People wanted some new heroes in British rock pop music, and Blur were there to give them that. And it suddenly became very, very fashionable and on trend to like everything British and anything that celebrated Britishness. Parklife wears its Britishness with pride and humour. And this is just one notable concept that runs across what is a musically, lyrically and thematically complex album. Damon was hitting an amazing purple patch with his songwriting. The songs were pouring out of him. A real variety of different sounds from something that was almost like an electronic dance song like Girls and Boys to absolute direct punk rock songs like Bank Holiday. To really heart-wrenching ballads, beautiful arrangements like To The End. So it was a very British, very distinctive sound. There are songs on it which are about the experience of being in one's mid-twenties. Badhead, end of a century, to the end. Very pointedly about one's mid-twenties, I think. About when sort of adulthood starts to really bite and the hangovers get a little bit more unbearable. And life gets a little bit more complicated, but you're still sort of being hedonistic and living it up. And I sort of heard that in a lot of those songs, you know. I mean, Badhead, when he sings, Today I'll get up around two. Very powerful lines at that time of your life. The other track that I really enjoy is Badhead. I really like the mellow tracks, you know, when Blur do the mellow kind of Sid Barrett-y type vibe. And uh, for me, that was a crucial song on the album. It was an odd period in history, really. The 90s was quite a giddy, celebratory time when nothing seemed to matter very much. On one level, Park Life soundtracks that, because it's quite sort of carefree. But in a more complicated way, it also says, God, we've got nothing to hang on to here. You know, you kind of hear that. There's an emptiness about this because there's nothing that seems to be very important. It's an album that spans musical genres, from synth pop to punk rock to new wave. There's even the instrumental waltz of the Deck Collector. The other thing that it does really well is it channels what happened to that English influence when new wave was around, if you listen to Trouble in the Message Centre. It's quite sort of post-punk, little hints of Wire and Magazine and all that. And the guitar sounding that Graham says is taken from Fashion by David Robert Fripp's playing, which is another sort of English touchstone. Another couple of tracks that I really enjoy from the album, London Loves. I really love that track. I just love the groove that the guys hit on that. I think Graham's guitar solo is, is way out there, but wonderful. 
It really, for me, was one of my favourite tracks on the record, kind of groove-wise. One of my favourites is Tracy Jacks. I always remember that going down incredibly live. Always a kind of like twisted lyrical content, a lot of humour in there, and a lot of musically a lot of humour. End of the Century, I always thought was a, a fantastic song. So clearly expresses the emotions of the person involved in the song. Very much in the influence of the Kinks and you know, Ray Davis type classic British songwriting. So like all the best groups, you couldn't say, oh, it sounds like the Small Faces, oh, it sounds like Madness, oh, it sounds like the Jam. They cleverly sort of alchemise those influences together with their own individuality and it becomes something else. Despite the unbounded productivity of the Parklife sessions, the final song to be recorded for the album proved difficult to complete. It took the inspiration of an unlikely source to finish, the British shipping forecast. Another shipping forecast issued by the Met Office. The general synopsis at 1800, low 200 miles south of Iceland. The other real key moment on the record for me is This Is A Low. We had mixed pretty much everything and This Is A Low was still not finished because Damon hadn't written the lyric. And I think we broke for Christmas and uh, Damon was a big fan of the shipping forecast and I went to Stanford's in Covent Garden and they had a hanky with the shipping forecast regions on it. I thought that's Damon's Christmas present sorted. That's essentially what the lyrics are all about. A handkerchief Damon got off Alex James as a present which had the British shipping forecast areas on it. Atmospherically, it's brilliant. The lyrics are amazing. The fantastic idea of singing a song that soundtracks the British shipping forecast. It's such great lines in it. And on the Malian head, Blackpool looks blue and red and the Queen, she's gone round the bend and jumped off Land's End. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. And the Queen's gone round the bend when he put that vocal down, it's like, oh, yeah, shivers down the spine. This is really good. Glad we did this one. And I think he had a hernia or something, and he had to go into hospital. So literally, he recorded the vocal, disappeared off to hospital. John and I mixed the song. And I remember getting a phone call from Damon later on in the day, slightly woozy under the anaesthetic, still recovering from uh, his operation, asking how it had gone. So that song was pretty much finished at the very last moment. So again, another one that nearly didn't make the cut. This Is A Low is my personal favourite track on the album because it's not quite the last track, but effectively it ends the album. And it's the best track I think they ever recorded. And the genius of that song in particular never waned for me. Long before anyone started making Beatles comparisons, it's the one song from that era that stands comparison to the Beatles, and I still think that. But it's such a masterpiece, that song. Just a perfect, perfect piece of work. And it's one of the great songs about Britain, and it's astonishing that they can create something that kind of musically dense and complex and lyrically brilliant, and I'd say it's the greatest song of the Britpop era. My key sort of blur moment, I suppose, from this period even, is watching them play that at Glastonbury and Night. It was a lovely warm evening, there was a gentle breeze, and they played This Is A Low. And I thought, well, that's it. Whatever it is to be utterly beyond criticism and on a trajectory of your own, you're kind of it. This is 
Amidst an album full of depth and range, penultimate album track This Is A Low stands out for many as a highlight. On April the 25th, 1994, Blur released Parklife on Food Records. While those closest to the recording knew it was good, no one could have anticipated the impact it would have. That and more after the break on Parklife 25. Welcome back to Parklife 25. By the time that Blur had released Parklife, the British music charts were dominated by boy bands Mariah Carey and Mr Blobby. There were hardly any indie bands in sight, but on the eve of one of British rock's greatest releases, food record's Andy Ross wasn't phased. When the album came out, I've looked through my diaries and there wasn't any sense of concern or alarm or anticipation in my mind about how that album would do because we were extremely confident by the time it came out that we'd have a number one album. Alex James was similarly confident about the record, but he could not have envisaged the developments that were to follow. So there was a feeling that while the record was being made, that maybe we're doing something good, but what success looked like for the record was basically just not getting dropped and being able to go back to Sweden again. That would have been a win. I mean, the Stone Roses, they'd had a platinum record for a guitar band. That would have been stratospheric to do that. But I don't think anybody really had any sense of what level of bat craziness was going to occur. Caroline Sullivan, former chief rock critic at The Guardian. Nobody was expecting big things of Blur and then the week before it came out, Music Week, the trade magazine, ran a big editorial about why Parklife was going to change British pop and there I was, chief rock critic of The Guardian and I didn't even know they were bringing an album out and I thought, Blur? Why them? How are they possibly going to change British pop? And lo and behold they did. Just kept on getting more and more crazy. I thought things had already got as crazy as they ever could but I was misguided. Parklife marked Blur's return to the public eye as they became hot property, frequently appearing across British television. This is Channel 4, and this is The Word. Mike Smith, MCA Publishing, an industry friend of Blur. And the band were doing The Word, which was a TV programme, which was crucial to try and launching a new record. You'd do The Word, and it was the TV show to get on. John Harris, music journalist. It is great, because Albarn really projects, you know. He kind of knows this is his moment. I think he opens a can of lager and empties it all over the cameras. And it's quite a hard song to play. You can tell the rest of the band, apart from Alex, who's quite good at covering this up, are really having to concentrate to play this song live. But Damon sort of rules that performance. And again, like Reading, you have this sense of, you can't deny this. They were just supercharged with an energy of this is our time, this is our moment. They knew they were riding the zeitgeist. It's that wonderful moment when you are at the heart of what's going on right now. And girls and boys exploded and they were back in the top five. And bang, it went on. Not long ago, Blur were written off as just another indie pop band. But with the success of the album Parklife, they've become one of the most hyped bands of the year. From grubby indie urchins to stadium contenders, Blur are 1994 smash hit purveyors of classic English pop. To kickstart tonight's showcase of talent, with a number called Jubilee, it's the incredibly sexy Blur! I clearly recall in the immediate aftermath of the album coming out, it was just everywhere. 
I had friends from university who were not music anoraks at all. And they, they had it and they were playing it all the time. I remember a lot of car journeys with Park Life on. It's a record that becomes inescapable. People of my age everywhere, suddenly I could tell they were buying it and every shop doorway you walk past through in Camden or Notting Hill or wherever, it was blasting out. And then as those hit singles pile up, then it really starts snowballing. You couldn't turn on the radio in 1994 without hearing either Park Life or Girls and Boys and you couldn't get away from it, in fact. And that just drew people in. Those songs really were the ones that people were kind of whistling as they went to work. It just felt that, oh, crikey, we've run into the zeitgeist. We've been ambushed by a bloody zeitgeist and this is it. And the zeitgeist wants Park Life. And it was more a case of right album, right songs, right time. Yeah, I just think we'd all developed as musicians and songwriters and they were good songs by people who were sort of just about starting to get a handle on what they were doing and really enjoying themselves. All success is basically the result of an accident, you know. You know, if you just keep turning up and keep doing it, like, sometimes you get it right. Blur there sounding marvellous. Parklife debuted at number one in the UK album chart and stayed on the chart for 90 weeks. Its success and popularity at the time is undeniable, as Parklife gave the British music industry a much-needed shake-up. And no event better demonstrated the commercial and critical popularity of the album than the 1995 Brit Awards. This is the Brit's 1995. And the winner is... Blur! Parklife! Blur! Parklife! Blur! The band won British Album of the Year for Part Life, British Single of the Year and Video of the Year for the title track, as well as being named Best British Group. It was an amazing year for music. I think there was a lot of great music being made, but it dominated because they caught the spirit of the nation. And no band said Britain in 1994 better than Blur. I was at the 1995 Brits and when they won Best Single for Park Life, Park Life played over the PA and this massive chorus, all the people, and absolutely every crusty music executive in the house was actually singing along to it. And it was one of those communal moments where you actually felt proud to be part of something and it really felt at that moment as though British music was the most important thing in the world. And it's interesting, I think, in their acceptance speech at the time, they acknowledged what was going on, they acknowledged the other bands that were coming through. Blue were very gracious in the midst of that moment. I mean, when they got Breast British Group, Damon said... I think they should have been shared with Oasis. It's an amazing thing to do. Yeah, much love and respect to them. The four awards they won that night in February is unprecedented. It remains the most any artist has won in a single Brit Awards ceremony. It was very gratifying to see in the Brits of that year them win all those awards. But it did mean then that there was pressure. Where do we go with this next? And that's really the big Britpop moment. And it's no accident, I think, that that happens in early 95 and then Britpop is on everybody's lips sort of by the spring. So over that eight months that part life was around and gathered momentum, Britpop so-called gathered momentum with it. After the Brits, which don't forget were watched by however many million people at home, they did become a household name because all of a sudden they were actually being beamed into people's homes. People who hadn't heard of them now knew who Blur were. You are the news. And that's the point at which then Damon in particular becomes sort of tabloid property. They become uncomfortable with their success. And so what was at first kind of regarded as a little bit of a kind of, this is fantastic, you know, it's all happening, 
suddenly became like, oh my God, what move do we do next? Everything started to be more judgmental. Park life was the end of the innocence, as it were. <laughs> Dave Roundtree said in an interview I remember reading, fame and success is an odd thing. It's like going to the shop to buy an apple and they give you a motorbike. It just seems completely inappropriate. And I think they felt like that. So they endured a very difficult period after Park life. As often happens with success, you get what you thought you wanted and it, it's not what you wanted at all. After the events at the Brits, almost overnight, Blur became a national sensation. The recognition they received at these awards acknowledged not only their successes, but it drew attention to the quickly emerging scene of young British rock bands up and down the country. Food Records founder, David Balfe. When those kind of things kicks off, everybody jumps on the bandwagon. Suddenly the band's records are getting, instead of getting to number seven, they're getting to number one. And that feeds back into the frenzy and it all keeps on building. And that's what happened. Parklife's release held the explosion of Britpop and all the drama that came with it. The rise of Oasis, the battle for number one, and the intense rivalry between Britpop bands that was big news and captured the imagination of the British public. I knew how good Blur were. I knew how good Supergrass were and how good Pulp were. And now here was Oasis. You suddenly get four or five bands coming through at the same time. You have a cultural explosion. And that's what happened. And the momentum just built and built and built. When the news at six and the news at ten are leading with who's going to be number one, you know you've really come somewhere that most people don't get to. Two of Britain's most popular pop groups have begun the biggest chart war in 30 years. The Manchester band Oasis and their arch rivals Blur released new singles today. There's only one band that can get to the top spot. All will be revealed on Sunday's Top 40. I remember building up to that Sunday and I remember listening to the Top 40 countdown and it felt like building up to a big football match. It felt like you were waiting for the FA Cup final. I can feel a top ten rundown coming up. I sported Blur and I remember being so excited that they'd won. And at number two, it's Oasis win. And that can mean only one thing. Tonight, there's no denying Blur are top of the box. The story of Britpop aside, Parklife was simply an essential album of its time. I knew that we'd made a good piece of work here, but no one could have foretold that it would go on to become culturally such a big album and also commercially be so successful. I think it was in the album chart for over a year. That is something that you can only dream of, really. I think what made it a really standout album of its year is A, the difference between it and everything else that came out that year, but B, also the album was hugely important to the British music industry because it reinvigorated it. All of a sudden, record company A&R departments, instead of casting around for the next Stone Roses, they were casting around for the next Blur. Blur felt like the first band that spoke to me in a way that no band had done until that point. And it felt like... Damon Albarn and the concept of the songs and that kind of sunny Britishness that the 90s came to represent was how I experienced life, I suppose. And that is why I think that album spoke to my generation of music listeners. The country was ready for a musical change. You know, you've had this quite heavy, dark music dominating the British charts for a long time. And suddenly we wanted something bright. British people were in the mood for something that was going to make them proud to be British. And that actually did the trick. You suddenly have that spirit in the atmosphere and then you drop into it an album that is rammed full 
of brilliant song after brilliant song. You know, these are songs with just beautifully crafted melodies, hooks, lyrics, everything in those songs work. It's a band that have just hit their peak. An album that is steeped in musical variety and intrigue, the successes of Blur and Parklife extended way beyond the music. Even visually, stylistically, they were completely different to everything that was happening both here and in America. They had their Fred Perry shirts and their Doc Martens. It doesn't matter what photo session they did, they always looked incredible. But they also looked very original too. I mean, they were something that was very strong visually as well as sound-wise. And that's why I think they're the best group of my generation. As close as we ever got to our Beatles, I would say that was Blur. And that's not just because of the quality of their output, also the four personalities. It's one of those classic English quartets. What Blur did was what all groundbreaking groups do. They have not only the music, but a look. The look and the music absolutely cohered, and suddenly there was something for a new scene to actually latch onto. Even the image of the Greyhound on the Parklife album cover has become a symbol of Britishness, providing a striking visual to associate with the immediacy and distinctiveness of the music. Looking back, Parklife clearly holds a place as one of the great albums of its time, an album that defined the 1990s. It could be argued that everything we've come to know as Britpop stemmed from this album. Parklife is an album that does something few others are able to do. It captured the imagination of the British public impeccably and helped define an era. Parklife in itself transcends the album these days. I mean, it's taken on the life of itself. In fact, it's ubiquitous now. And it started out as a tiny little bit of a song, and now it's everyone. Everyone knows Parklife, whether they know the original recording of it or not. They know it from the advert on Sky Sports or Vitality or whatever. And so, so everyone knows Parklife. It's just with us. I mean, Parklife becomes the sort of signature record of that period because it's so good. There's four hit singles on it. There probably could have been six or seven. It just felt that everything came together, that wonderful moment of the planets aligning, and it just caught the mood of the nation, and it delivered pretty much a spot-on perfect collection of songs. I mean, I think Britpop values have come under a lot of fire. It's seen as provincial. It's seen as upholding lad culture. But amid all the... Revisionism now, the album itself, I think, stands up as a really good piece of music and really emblematic of its time, the good bit of its times, not the bad bits. I was listening back to it the other day, I hadn't listened to it for ages, and I thought because it had been so inescapable at that time, familiarity would have bred contempt, you know, I'd sort of be sick of it as soon as I put it on. It didn't do that at all. I thought it sounded really vivid and bright and full of energy and ideas and so diverse as well. There are so many musical styles on it. And the thing that really cuts through to me emotionally is when I do get the chance to see the band play, which is obviously not very much these days, but when they do play and they play the songs from that record, just seeing the public. I remember them playing it in Hyde Park. It was like a mass sing-along. It was just wonderful. It was like being in church. Just be proud of it. You know, I think it is something to be really proud of. I think what makes me most proud of it is that my kids like it, actually. I think it still sounds okay. And if people want to jump up and down to park life, I'm quite happy to oblige.
I'm Josh Whittacombe, and you've been listening to Parklife 25 on Absolute Radio. Absolute Radio.